How are you guys doing? You okay? Yeah. Oh my gosh, you guys are already better than my church at home. I do every Sunday morning. I get up. I say, "How are you going?" And it's just like, uh. and so I hit them up about it this morning. I said, "That's like the worst response I've ever heard." So now I'm going to go back and say, "I went up to activate, and they get it awesome first time." So, well done, well done, you guys. Hey, I know that uh, Jam and Sheridan say that you guys are looking to next season. You're going to be focusing on intimacy. You guys, you guys are already there. You were, you were already there. And you know what I was, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking in the front row, this is the thought that I had. I thought, how deep can this lot go? That's what I was thinking. I was like, how deep? And so that's my challenge for you, for all y'all. So how deep, how deep can you go? Um, I don't know whether it's just because we're in a different location, but it feels different. Something feels different. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because Luke's playing piano behind me the whole time, which is nice. Hey, uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself really quickly, just so you guys know who you're dealing with. Um, I'm Josh, and I've been... Hello. All right, well done. Now you're just, now you're just sucking up, right? And uh, I've been married for coming up 17 years. Well, I know, which like on the one hand, I like to say because it makes me sound impressive. Don't you think it sounds impressive to say you've been married for almost 17 years? But then on the other hand, I don't like to say because it makes me sound old. Like 17 years is a long, that's a long time to be married to the same person. 17 years, my wife was 17 when we started dating. So like our marriage is almost older than she was when we met, which is crazy. It's a long time. Um, well, there might not be married that much longer if she hears me talking like that. So I should probably stop that. Um, we got three kids. We've got Jess. She's turning 13 in a week and a half. She's our oldest. And we've got Harrison, who's 11, and Darcy is nine. I think the best way to kind of sum up our family dynamic, I'll just tell you one quick story. I was sharing this with Sheridan the other day. We were over in Melbourne, and I think I was telling him this story. But uh, my wife came home, and she said to me, hey, my, my counsellor wants to meet you. So my wife and I, we both go to separate counsellors regularly. Like, I think it's important. You go to the doctors, don't you, Gillian, for like regular physical checkups I think it's important to go to you know smart people for emotional health checkups and if you're a pastor your emotions get kind of dinged around a little bit more perhaps than the average person so my wife's got this Christian supervisor that she goes to and I've got a Christian supervisor that lives on the other side of town and they don't know each other and one day my wife comes home and she says oh my my counselor wants to meet you I'm like why she said because you know we talk about you I said, what? You talk about me with you? She said, yeah. I said, I don't even think my counselor knows I'm married. Like you haven't. I don't talk about you at all. She goes, what? You're like all we talk about. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I'm like sus on this. And there's, there's something important that you need to know about me. And that is that I struggle to take anything too seriously for too long. It's just I can't, I can't do it. And so we go to this, this counsellor and we're sitting there and I'm doing a really good job of just paying attention and listening and nodding. And then at some point the facade must have cracked and I think I, like a little wee corner of my lip kind of twerked up and the counsellor saw it and she says, she goes, oh, it's, a, it's quite important to you that people think you're funny, isn't it? Whoa! Whoa, shots fired. Okay. And I went, oh, I don't know, it's like important that people think I'm funny, but 
Yeah, like I like to laugh. I like laughing with people. And if, if I can say something and people laugh, then that's, that's great. And she goes, she goes, huh. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and then she says, and so I'm starting to get a little bit like, this is annoying me. She says, she goes, what would happen in here if you tried to be funny and people didn't think you were funny? And I don't know what came over me because I looked straight at her and I said, you know what? I don't know. It's never happened. <laughs> and my wife is like, oh, gosh. You know. And uh, she goes, no, no, seriously. And then I dug my heels in and I said, maybe the world would explode or something. So she says, I don't, I don't have a great sense of humor. And I went, hmm. <laughs> you know. And so... We go home, and my wife's like, don't even talk to me, man. And we get home, and we're like open books with our kids. And so I say, hey, mom and dad went to counselor today. And Harrison and the kids, Jess and Darcy, they're like, how was it? How was it? And I go, oh, it was great. It was good. I got asked what would happen if people didn't think I was funny. They go, what would you say? I said, I told her, I don't know. It's never happened. And Harrison, my 11-year-old, he cracks up because he gets me. He's like, that's hilarious, Dad. And, and Jess, Jess, my elder, she goes, Dad, it has totally happened. And Darcy, my nine-year-old, goes, it's happening right now. Right, like that's, so that's, that's kind of like sums up my family, like right there in a nutshell. You've got like my beautiful wife who's like desperately trying to mature and grow herself as a person and be a better, be a better person. And then you've got me who's not... And then you've got my three kids. Harrison's on my side, team boy. And, and Jess is, as I say, about to turn 13. She tolerates me. And Darcy's just never, ever tolerated me. So that's, that's my family. Hey, if you've got your Bibles this morning, this morning, tonight? Yeah, okay. You can tell I preach a lot in the mornings. I reckon it would be cool for us to just go through a really fun story in the Bible and then have a wee conversation about how on earth that happened. Did anybody watch The Chosen? That's, that's pretty cool, right? I reckon I could get away with not even preaching anymore and just play episodes of The Chosen in my church for like a year and people would, would love it. But I saw this kind of story on The Chosen the other day. It's Jesus feeding the 4,000. Have you guys heard of this story? He multiplies, like spoiler alert, because we're going to read it, but he multiplies this food and he feeds a whole bunch of people. But let's just jump in. And we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. It says this, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praise the God of Israel. That right, like right there, that's normal Christianity. Right there. People bringing their lame, their sick to Jesus, being healed and then praising God because of what they've seen. This, there wouldn't be a church in the country that could contain the people if that was happening on a regular basis, right? Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and they've got nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, well, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, 
they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he'd given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And they in turn to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. This is an extraordinary miracle. Seven loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And he feeds 4,000 men plus women plus children. And we're talking 10, 15,000 people easy. Talk about a cost of living crisis. That's not a problem when you can live supernaturally like that. And so you read the story and you're like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? How did this miracle take place? What was the genesis for this story? What was the spark that ignited it? And what I find so fascinating about this is that you can tell the way that Matthew writes it, that this miracle has blown his mind. This miracle has completely shocked Matthew because at the start of this passage, he says, man, we were hanging out with Jesus for three days and there were blind people being healed and lame people being healed and crippled people being healed. And he gives no details, not a single story, not a single fact, not a single anecdote, not a single testimony. He just glosses over the three days of people being miraculously healed and he can't bring himself to even write down, oh, one guy was called Dave and this happened. Or I saw one lady called Judy and this happened. Nothing. And then he gets to the story of the food and he's like, goes nuts on details. He's like, there were seven loaves of bread. There was a couple of fish. Jesus like prayed over it and then he gave it to us and then we kind of gave it out and then we caught seven basketfuls left over. Like there's just a lot, there's 4,000 men he just goes nuts for details. I think when you read it, you can tell that this miracle blew his mind. And it's almost like, I hate to say it, but it's almost like he was a bit blasé at the start. Like, yeah, people were being healed. There's some lame people. I saw a blind person. It was pretty cool. Someone got up and then he gets to the, the food thing and he's just like, whoa. And so I, I, think, that, I think that that speaks volumes, that this was... This was an impressive miracle. This was above and beyond anything that the disciples had ever seen before. So how did it happen? Like what's the, what was the genesis of it? Like I say, what sparked it? Well, you read it and you go, well, maybe it was like, maybe it was obedience. Because the Bible says that Jesus gave the food to the disciples and told them to go and hand it out to everybody. And they did. If they hadn't done that, then the miracle wouldn't have happened. Maybe it's obedience. I think obedience is a super important ingredient if you want to see miracles happening in your life. But it's not what sparked it. So maybe it's prayer. Because Jesus took the food and he... You guys are going to get wet on the front row because I keep spitting. You need like those things they have at SeaWorld, like those wet zones, you know, for the first couple of seats. I'll stand back here so I don't get you, Maria. Maybe it's prayer because Jesus prayed for the loaves and the fish. And I think prayer is an important part for any miracle. I don't think you can have any miracles in your life if you're not having praying. Prayer is where the power comes from. But that's not the genesis of the miracle. It's not what sparked it. So we go back a little bit further. And you go, well, I know what it was, Josh. I know what it was. It was compassion. 
It says that Jesus had compassion. You can't have miracles happening in your life if you don't care about people, if you're not compassionate. And I'd agree with that too. I think you've got to have all of these things that we've talked about, but it's not the spark. What was the spark? It's really simple when you look at it. There's one ingredient that if if Jesus didn't have this one ingredient to work with, then the miracle would never have happened. If he didn't have this one special thing, then the miracle would never have happened. Do you know what it was? The people were hungry. No hunger, no miracle. If they'd come along and they had their packed breakfasts and their packed lunches and their packed dinners, they're all hoeing into their, their picnics. Jesus isn't looking around saying, man, these people are hungry. He's saying these people are, are fine. He's not going to go around and multiply food to feed 4,000 people if they're already eating. And what we see in this passage is that hunger moves God. You guys are going to go on this journey where you're exploring intimacy. Intimacy is really just, it's about closing the gap between two two people, or in this case, between us and God, like just getting as close to God as we can. I want to get to a point where you can't tell where Josh stops and God starts. I mean, I'm pretty close now. Like, look. Hunger moves God. And what I just love this, you know, the, 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 one of the things that Jesus came to do, like he came to die on the cross and pay the price for us since we understand that, but he had a lot of different jobs to do while he was here. And one of his jobs was to show us what the character of God looks like in human form. Anytime you think anything about God and it doesn't line up with how you see Jesus acting, you've got to change the way you think about God. Because Jesus will never do anything that God doesn't do. He'll never say anything that God wouldn't say. I think sometimes, especially if you watch The Chosen, you're like, man, it's so easy to love Jesus. Like, that guy, he's amazing. And then we have this picture of God, like, well, he's a bit scarier. He's a bit more of the authoritarian, the discipline. No, anytime anything you think about God is different to what you think about Jesus, you've got to change the way you think. Because Jesus came to show us what God was really like. So anytime, anytime Jesus says anything, it means that's what, Jesus, that's what God says. Anytime Jesus acts in a certain way, that's the way that God acts. And so what does Jesus say about hunger? I love it. In verse 32, just made you wait for a sec. He says, I've got compassion for these people and they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Here it is. I do not want to send them away hungry. Right there, that is God's heart for every single person in this place. I do not want to send them away hungry. If you show up to God with hunger, He will never send you away. Hunger moves God. Does that make sense? You know what else hunger does? Is hunger moves us. Luke chapter 15. You guys know the story of the prodigal son? I know you've preached about it in Activate before, right? So you got this young guy, Jesus is telling a parable about this young guy, and he says to his dad, basically, I don't want you alive anymore. I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. And so he breaks off from the family. There's this horrible relationship breakdown, and he takes his money, and Jesus says he goes off to this foreign land, and he squanders it on wild living. 
And things go from bad to worse for this young man. He ends up losing all of his money. He ends up becoming destitute. He ends up like working for some punk guy, looking after his pigs, which if you know anything about Jewish people, you'd know is like the absolute lowest job you could possibly get. They weren't even supposed to touch pigs, let alone work making sure that they're okay. And it says in, uh, in Luke chapter 15 that when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. What was it that motivated him to get up out of his position and move back towards his father? It was hunger. And so we see that hunger moves God and we see that hunger moves us. And so I think that an absolute like foundational thing that you've got to have in your life, that we've got to have in our lives, if we want to pursue intimacy with God, is we have to have hunger. Got to have hunger. So how do we how do we get that? You can't just manufacture hunger. You can't just click your fingers and be like, "I'm hungry now." My living rod, some can, but most people can't. And again, the answer is in the Bible. It's in the same passage, actually. The way the kingdom of heaven works, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but the way the kingdom of heaven works is it's, it's upside down, back the front, topsy-turvy to the way that things work here. So down here, if you want to be first, you've got to get there first. You've got to put yourself first. You've got to push yourself first. But what does the Bible say about being first? It says if you want to be first, you've got to go last. That doesn't make any sense. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Back to front, upside down, topsy-turvy. Right, Jesus said, if you hold on to your life, then you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, then you'll find it. That's also ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. But the kingdom of God is upside down, back to front, inside out, topsy-turvy. So here, if you want to build hunger, what do you do? You stop eating. You go on some fast. You don't eat you know, for an extended period of time and you get, you get hungry. The Bible says about Jesus in Matthew 4 that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's the single biggest understatement in the entire Bible. It's ridiculous. I like reading it in the King James Version. In the King James Version, it says that after 40 days and 40 nights, he was and hungered. I don't know what that is, but there's a lot of times, a lot of times that I think I'm and hungered. Like, seriously. I'm not going to lie, Jam and Sharon picked me up from the airport. We had to stop off at KFC on the way to church. It was my fault. So down here, if you want to build hunger, you build it by just abstaining from food, by going without. But if the kingdom of God is upside down, inside out, topsy-turvy, back the front, then what do you do? You've got to do the opposite. And look at what Jesus says in the same passage. He says, I've got compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days. How do you build hunger? By spending time with Jesus. But they've been with him for three days. He said they've built this hunger. And I want to tell you guys, I, I have such a strong conviction and I'm becoming more and more open about it and confident to say it in public that I think we are on the precipice of the greatest move of God that we have ever seen, not in our lifetime, not in this century, I mean ever. I mean, we, 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 some of you will talk about Welsh revivals or Azusa Street revivals or you know, revivals here and there. I think we're going to see a revival on a global scale. 
And, and I really resonated with what Sheridan was saying about wanting to be a part of it. I was at home the other day and I was just praying. I was like, God, I, I don't want to watch this revival happen from the outside in. I don't want to see people's lives being changed and not be a part of it. I don't want to hear about miracles happening and not see it for myself. I got to tell you guys that the world needs hungry Christians. It does not need it's going to sound almost sacrilegious. It doesn't need more bums on seats. It doesn't need bigger churches. It doesn't need more people ticking Christian on the census form. It needs hungry Christians. It needs Christians that are prepared to go deep with Him. Christians that are prepared to pursue intimacy. That are prepared to lay things down. How many people want to see miracles in their life? Like how many people watch The Chosen and just go, oh, like, how amazing would that be if that was like your normal experience? How many people have got friends and family in their life that need healing? That you're like, man, we've got this woman in our church. We don't have a big church. It's maybe this size on a Sunday morning. And she's been a part of the church for years. Michael and Jillian will know her. Her name's Jackie. And she sits in a wheelchair in the front row. And she's got, I'm not even sure exactly what's, what's wrong with her, but she can't speak. She's fully aware of what's going on. She can understand you, but she can't control her mouth. And the number of times I've looked at her and thought, man, imagine if she just stood up one Sunday morning. Imagine if she just stood up and said, I've got something to say. Like, I can't even begin to explain what that would do. Imagine if people knew they could bring their crippled, their lame, their blind into a place like this encounter the love and power of Jesus Christ and be healed. Guys, we've got to stop settling for so much less than what Jesus Christ died for. We've got to stop settling with the crumbs. We've got to stop being okay with one meal a week on Sunday mornings. You can't survive on that. You can't thrive on that. You can't grow on that. I think that what God wants to do in the world is so spectacular. But he needs people that are sold out for him. Sometimes I'm just, sometimes I just want to grab people and shake them and be like, what are you doing? Do you ever feel like that, Jay? I mean, it'd be scary if you did it. You're huge. Right? Most, most adults are like, never shake a baby. Jay's like, never shake an adult. Like, and then, and then half the time, I need to shake myself. Hunger moves God. He has got such a plan and a purpose for every single one of you. He wants to take you on the craziest adventure of your life. If you trust Him, we get so bogged down by needing to understand everything. Trust and understanding are completely opposite ends of the spectrum. The more trust you have, the less understanding you need. And the more understanding you need, the less trust you have. I'm just waiting for a sec because I'm, I'm just actually not sure what on earth to do next. This happens quite a lot in church and um, it's kind of freaky being out the front and having a whole bunch of people looking at you like, 
What are you doing? So I'm just looking over all of your heads down the back. Do you know what I tell my church all the time? And this is very deflating for a pastor or a preacher, but it's true. You can listen to a thousand messages and it won't do what one moment with God will do for you. And like I say, it's a little bit depressing for someone who speaks a lot, but like one, like a nano, like like just a touch from God will do more for your life than a thousand messages. And it's great to get up here and it's great to preach and it's great to encourage people. I love all of that. But it has to be about more than this. You guys will go home, be like, hey, it was a good night, got some good worship, Josh told some funny stories, and then you carry on with your life. What I want to do tonight, I think, is I just want to create space for God to do that. To just touch you. And sometimes, I'll be totally honest with you, sometimes when you get invited in to speak, you kind of feel like this obligation, this pressure, not at all from Janet Sheridan, but you just kind of feel it. Like, well, if I've been brought in, then I have to manufacture something or do something or be the person that lays hands on people. But not tonight, I don't think so. I think actually tonight, God just wants to stir something up in us. Like, I I pray that He would ruin you for the ordinary. that it would become impossible for you to be satisfied with the status quo. That there would be something that is ignited in you tonight or reignited or just even breathed on by God that would make you go, I am not prepared to live an ordinary life. How is it possible that we can be in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever it is that we are, and people can't tell the difference between us, people that are filled with the same power that rose Christ from the dead, And the person next to us who's got nothing hasn't experienced that relationship ignition, hasn't had that baptism, hasn't been filled with that spirit. How is that possible? Shouldn't be. What key are you in? D. I don't know what that means. I was just sounding smart. I thought it was D. Yeah. Do you know like a good song? Have you been listening to what I've been saying? Yeah? So, okay. On like that theme, pick like a good song. If this doesn't work, we know whose fault it is. Um, another thing that I say to my church all the time is that I, I, think, I think God has got the zaniest sense of humor. I think God is a really fun God. And I don't think that God gets scared off by having a laugh. He made us to have fun. He made us. And like, again, like you watch the passion. Like my favorite parts is watching Jesus just clown around with his disciples because that's, that's, that's what God's like. So you can get up here and you can be super serious and then you can say something dumb and God's like, yeah. Well, you needed to break the tension, bro. It was getting heavy. Do you know what you're doing? What song? Set a fire. 
better be in D. Okay, good. That's a good choice, Luke. I like it. We don't have to stick to the timer down the back, hey? We've got heaps of time anyway. Here's what we'll do. I'm, I want to pray. And what I want to do is I just want to invite you, like Sharon said at the start, to, to step forward. But And I know there's not a lot of room here. and Maybe only a couple of people will. I don't know. But I want you to actually come up the front. And if we have to, we can just push some seats back. And I want you to come up the front. If you... If you want more of God, if you're like, I am not satisfied living an everyday normal life. I want to be hungry for you, God. I want to be stirred up for you. I want to be passionate for you. I want to be inspired by you. I want to see the power of God move in my life. I don't want to just hear about it or watch dramatizations on TV, as fun as that is. I want to see it firsthand. 